Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, 2 Samuel chapter 9. As we enter uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, I want to remind you that precise chronological order is not maintained in the book. And this is because the authors and or editors were not endeavoring to create a blow-by-blow account of David's reign, but rather they were weaving together the most significant events that shaped David's career, illuminating his admirable qualities as well as his flaws, revealing God's plan and his intentions. So we're going to have to do a little weaving ourselves today to gain a better understanding of, of what we see occurring. Now I promise you that the several hidden elements of what seems on the surface to be a rather simple story are going to surprise many of you. Now chapter 9 is the story of David remembering his promise to his dear friend Jonathan and ostensibly showing compassion upon the house of Shaul. Now let's recall those circumstances that led to David doing this by reading 1 Samuel 20 verses 11 through 17. Keep your Bibles handy. We're going to move around a lot in your Bibles today. 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this will be page um, 321. First Samuel twenty eleven through seventeen. Jonathan said to David, "Come, let's go out into the countryside." And they both went out. Or they went out, both of them, to the countryside. And Jonathan said to David, "Adonai, the God of Israel, is witness. After I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, then if things look good for David, I'll send and let you know. But if my father intends to do you harm, may Adonai." Do as much and more to me if I don't let you know and send you away so that you can go in peace. And may Adonai be with you just as he used to be with my father. However, you are to show me Adonai's kindness not only while I'm alive so that I do not die but also after Adonai has eliminated every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth, you are to continue showing kindness to my family forever. Thus Jonathan made a covenant with the family of David, adding, May Adonai seek its fulfillment even through David's enemies. Jonathan had David swear it again because of the love he had for him. He loved him as he loved himself. Now that things were relatively stable and and battling for survival was no longer uh, his everyday task, David turned his attention to less urgent matters. Long ago, David had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness, chesed, to his children and that he would not annihilate 
the remnants of Saul's family. And as was so customary, when a new king and his family deposed a former king and his family. Now the date of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 we can only approximate as about the middle of David's reign. David had a reign of around 40 years total. The main character used to demonstrate David's faithfulness to a vow that he had made so so many years earlier, a vow made before the Lord, is Mephibosheth, also known in the book of Chronicles as Meribal, who was lamed as a five-year-old child when his attending nurse dropped him in a panic as they fled believing that David was coming to kill those who remained of Saul's dynasty. Let's recall that. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read just the first four verses. When Ish-bosheth, the son of Shaul, heard that Avner had died in Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel became alarmed. Shaul's son had two men who were captains of raiding parties, one called Be'ana and the other Rechav, sons of Ramon the Beriti, of the people of Benjamin. For Beriti is counted as part of Benjamin, even though the Birotim fled to Gitaim and lived as foreigners there to this day. Now Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son, and he was lame in both legs. He had been five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Israel. His nurse had gathered him up and fled, but she was hurrying to get away, and he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. It was the murder of Abner by David's supreme military commander, Joab, that precipitated this widespread panic that led to this tragic accident uh, crippling the child Mephibosheth. That probably was due to a spinal injury. And no doubt, David learned of it and he probably felt a twinge of guilt, if not responsibility for it all. Okay, so let's read our chapter now for today, which is 2 Samuel chapter 9. Just a couple of pages from where you are. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David inquired, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom for Jonathan's sake I can show kindness? And in Saul's household, there had been a servant named Siva. And they summoned him to David, and the king asked him, Are you Siva? And he answered, At your service. And the king said, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom I can show God's grace? Ziva said to the king, Well, there is still Jonathan's son with the lame legs. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziva answered, He's there in the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel, in Lodafar. And King David sent and took him from the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel, in Lodavar. 
Mephibosheth, the son of Yohanan, the son of Shaul, came to David, fell on his face, prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I am determined to be kind to you for the sake of Jonathan your father. I will restore to you all the land of Shaul, your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. He prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you pay such attention to a dead dog like me? The king called to Siva, Shaul's servant, and said to him, I have given everything Saul and his family owned to your master's grandson. You were to work the land for him, you, your sons, and your slaves. Harvest the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to feed his family. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Sifa had 15 sons and 20 slaves. Sifa said to the king, Your servant will do everything my lord the king commands his servant, although Mephibosheth has been eating at my table as one of the king's descendants. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Everyone living in Ziva's house was a servant of Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth lived in Yerushalayim, and he always ate at the king's table, and he was lame in both legs. Verse 1 has David asking the question of his royal court if anyone was aware of a family member of Saul that was still alive. One has to reasonably ask, why now? What's the catalyst for David suddenly, after probably two decades having passed, thinking about Saul's family? Surely, David's wife, Michal, who was King Saul's daughter, would have been aware if she had any aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, or others of her family that were still living, even where they were located. Why didn't David just ask her? Well, the answer may well lie in a later chapter of 2 Samuel that we're going to study in due time. But I want to jump ahead and go there now and at least read part of it. So jump ahead now, a few pages, to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to read the first 14 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 21. In David's time, there was a famine that lasted three years, and David consulted Adonai. And Adonai said, It's because of Saul and his blood-stained house, because he put to death the people of Gibeon. And the king summoned the, the Gibeonites and said to them, These Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel, but from the remnant of the Amorites. And the people of Israel had sworn to them, but Saul, in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah, had sought to exterminate them. And David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? What, with what can I make atonement so that you'll be able to bless Adonai's heritage? 
And the Gibeonites said to him, Our dispute with Saul can't be resolved with silver or gold, and we don't have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. He said, So what do you say that I should do for you? And they answered the king, The man who ruined us, who schemed against us, so that we would cease to exist anywhere in Israel's territory, uh, he has seven of his male descendants handed over to us, and we will put them to death by hanging before Adonai and Geba of Shaul, whom Adonai chose. And the king said, Okay, I'll hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before Adonai between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mecholati. And he handed them over to the Gibeonites who hanged them on the hill before Adonai. All seven died. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest season at the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth, spread it out toward a cliff for, for herself and stayed there from the beginning of the harvest until water was poured out, from the, uh, out on the bodies from the sky not letting the birds land on them during the day or the wild animals at night. David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, her son, uh, his son, from the men of Yabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them at the time the Philistines had, King Saul, had killed uh, King Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son. They also gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the territory of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. They did everything the king ordered. Only after that was God prevailed on to show mercy to the land. Okay. We're certainly not going to study this chapter in depth today. However, it contains pertinent information about the slaughter upon Saul's family that occurred with David's blessing. And interestingly, we find that Mephibosheth is mentioned as having specifically been spared. Further, this same chapter ends, chapter 21, although we didn't read all the way to the end of it, that David was still dealing with the Philistines. Even though in chapter 8, we're told that the Philistines had been subdued and rendered weak. Thus it is commonly, and I think correctly, held that likely this event of 2 Samuel chapter 21 occurred before the event of 2 Samuel chapter 9 which leads David to ask several months, perhaps a couple of years later, after the genocide upon Saul's family, is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to who, for Jonathan's sake, I can show kindness? David was fully aware of who Mephibosheth was. He was Jonathan's son. 
And no doubt, that's why he refused to give royal permission to allow the Gibeonites to kill him right along with all the others from Saul's family. However, Mephibosheth had disappeared. And his whereabouts didn't seem to be known. Now, we'll talk more about that shortly. Now, blood revenge was the motive of the day. And certainly the Gibeonites were not about to rest after they had just killed several members of Saul's family until they also killed Mephibosheth. So he was taken to a secret and protected place that even David didn't know about. So the context of our story and of David's inquiry is that the known remaining members of Saul's family had been executed with David's consent and now David is concerned about that vow he made before the Lord especially as it concerned Jonathan's descendants. Now more evidence that this is the correct context of the story is further revealed or rather verified by verse 2 where it has a fellow named Ziva being brought to David to answer David's inquiry. Now Ziva, probably meaning statue, is said to be a servant of Saul's household. In Hebrew it is Eved and it means slave, servant. Now while there's no specific mention of it, ancient Hebrew tradition is that Ziva was a Gentile which accounts for a name like statue that undoubtedly would have been a reference to an idol. So this Tseva is hired as a hired non-Israelite steward over Saul's estate and at the moment at least seems to be the person having the most authority over whatever remains of Saul's holdings. Now a good logical question is why isn't a surviving member of Saul's family running things instead of a hired foreign caretaker? Answer, because of what we just read in chapter 21. Saul's few remaining family had somewhat recently been executed. And so the highest ranking servant of the family suddenly found himself standing alone at the top of the pecking order. There was no one else left to oversee Saul's estate. Ziva had won the lottery, or so it seemed. So Ziva stands before David, and in verse 3, it has David directly inquiring with the same question to Ziva, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom I can show God's grace? Now look at your Bibles. And compare the question that David asks in verse 1 with what's asked in verse 3. Most Bible versions have in verse 1 show kindness and in verse 3 show grace or maybe show mercy. I merely want to use this passage to point out to you why translating the Bible from Hebrew to English, or from Greek to English for that matter, is so problematic. All three of these English words, kindness, mercy, and grace, that each has a somewhat different meaning for us, 
is actually the same Hebrew word, chesed. So for the average Bible student, it appears as though the question that is asked is slightly different between verses 1 and 3, and thus the characterization of what David is proposing to do for this hypothetical survivor of Saul's family is slightly different. But in fact, it's not so. Chesed is a uniquely Hebrew concept that indeed includes elements of kindness and grace and mercy, but that's not all. Unfortunately, as a practical matter, a Bible translator has little choice but to pick something as his translation of preference, and it needs to be a single word and not some long explanation of a word. Otherwise, we have Bibles the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Already, the Old Testament in our English Bibles is one-third more words than the Hebrew Old Testament. Just in trying to get across some semblance of a reasonable translation. So when we take these regular detours in Torah class to carefully examine even a single word in a passage, understand that it's necessary. Because there's no way that our Bibles, as translated to English, can fully convey these Hebrew thoughts or cultural nuances nuances to us as we've received them. So, very often, so very often, we have all heard that the Bible, especially the Old Testament, makes little sense and is just full of contradictions. But the reality is that most of those supposed contradictions are due to necessarily limited or quite poor or agenda-driven translation efforts. And because a book of only a few hundred pages, just a few hundred pages, the Bible spans an enormously long period from the creation of the world to the coming of Christ. It's impossible to explain to the reader all the cultural norms. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to learn about the ancient culture and history of the era and of the Middle Eastern region of the world and then to delve into these original languages as much as we can so as to resolve most of these difficulties. Therefore, now that I've set you up, it's time for one of our infamous detours. In verse 3, where it says that David wants to demonstrate God's chesed to any surviving member of Saul's family, it's not meant that Yehovah is showing the chesed. Rather, it is that David is making it clear that the purpose of seeking out survivors of Saul's family is to keep a vow that by definition has invoked God's name as the guarantor of that vow. Seva responds that indeed there is a survivor. He is Yohanatan's son, but he has lame legs. Now it's interesting that the last verse of this chapter also points again to the fact that Mephibosheth has lame legs. And this has not escaped the attention of the rabbis. Their take on this emphasis of lameness 
is that Ziva is sort of showing scorn for Mephibosheth. Because inherent in David's question about there being any survivors of Saul's family is why this Gentile servant would be in charge of this former king's substantial estate if there were family members still living. It is certainly to Zeva's advantage if there are no survivors because his status as top dog would remain unthreatened. Even though Zeva is not so unwise as to boldly lie to Israel's king, he does quickly point out that while there is a survival, he's a cripple. Thereby answering the unasked but obvious question. So why does it matter that Mephibosheth is lame? See, the thing is that in ancient times, cripples were seen as near worthless. They were a burden. And barring some unusual circumstance, they usually wound up as street beggars in order to survive. A cripple could never hold a position of prominence or authority because he would be seen as unable to carry out the duties or, or to defend his position from people who might like to take it from him. The disabled weren't merely seen as having little use. They were actually despised. They were looked down upon as undesirables bordering on ritually unclean. In fact, we'll find several lessons in the New Testament involving disabled people where Yeshua speaks against the custom of the era to see these unfortunate folks as little more than bugs to be stepped on. Even more, it was often reckoned that their disability was of divine doing. And so there must be something inherently distasteful about them that caused them to be cursed and rejected by God. Let's briefly look at but one example to better help us understand just how the lame and the blind were viewed all throughout biblical times. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Page 1342 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. This will be familiar to you. As Yeshua passed along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his Talmudim asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, to cause him to be born blind? And Yeshua answered, His blindness is due neither to his sin nor to that of his parents. It happened so that God's power might be seen at work in him. As long as it is day, we must keep doing the work of the one who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva, put mud on the man's eyes and said to him, Now go wash off in the pool of Shiloh or Shiloam. 
And the name means sent. So he went and washed and came away seeing. And his neighbors and those who previously had seen him begging said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And Sub said, Yes, he is the one. While others said, No, but it looks like him. However, he himself said, I am the one. Well, how were your eyes open? They asked him. And he answered, This man called Yeshua made mud. He put it on my eyes and he told me, Go to Shiloach, again, possibly, probably Shiloam, and wash. So I went. And as soon as I had washed, I could see. And they said to him, Where is he? And he replied, I don't know. Well, they took the man who had been blind to the Perushim, the uh, uh, Pharisees. Now the day on which Yeshua had made the mud and opened his eyes was Shabbat. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had become able to see. And he told him, he put mud on my eyes and then I washed and now I can see. At this, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, he doesn't keep Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who's a sinner do miracles like this? And there was a split among them. So once more they spoke to the blind man. Since you're the one whose eyes he opened, what do you have to say about him? And he replied, he's a prophet. Here's one of the first stories the children are taught in Sunday school. And I don't want to get into the deeper theological aspects of this story. But rather, I merely want to use it to point out from a social aspect that what so terribly rankled the population of Jerusalem by what Yeshua did here, and it especially upset the religious elite, is that this blind man should never have been healed. It was wrong to heal him. That he was healed on Sabbath mattered, but equally so the Sabbath issue was secondary. It was an excuse to find fault. What actually mattered to them is that this man was supposed to be blind. Thus Yeshua's disciples asked the question of their master, and I paraphrase, is it this man's own sin or is it that of his parents that caused his blindness? In other words, every person among the surrounding onlookers, as well as Yeshua's own disciples, took it as self-evident that the man's blindness was divine retribution caused either by that man's own sin or that of his parents. So he was certainly worthy of his affliction and of the Jews' scorn and derision for him. And Yeshua completely overturns standard societal thinking as well as some very faulty theology that was all existent in that era by saying it was neither one. Sin had nothing to do with this. The man's blindness was not a divine curse. That in fact, the Lord was using this social outcast's unfortunate condition to demonstrate divine glory and mercy. The public attitude was that God did not love the disabled. Otherwise, He wouldn't have caused their disability in the first place. 
The crippled and the lame were generally even barred from the synagogue because they were seen as abandoned by God. Thus, even when Yeshua healed the blind man, the Judean people and the religious authorities saw it as the greatest offense and outrage that a mere man had seen fit to intervene and overturn a divine decision to punish this man by making him blind. It was obvious to most of the eyewitnesses that Yeshua had healed this man. And just as obviously, he must have had some supernatural power that enabled him to do it. But since most of them didn't believe that Yeshua was divine, then the only alternative as to where this power came from for Yeshua to heal is that he was of the devil something he was regularly accused of after he had performed a miracle. Some did think that the power he had was a good power. So they openly wondered if perhaps he was the prophet, possibly a reincarnated Elijah, who many thought was due to appear about that time. Now let me sermonize just a moment. What we do not hear in John 9 is the crowds shouting out that this blind man deserved to be blind and that God didn't love him so Yeshua was wrong to heal him. But it was what they thought deep down inside. It was a principle that they took for granted without further examination because it was how things had been for thousands of years. Only in private circles, only in hushed tones would they ever actually say that thought out loud. Because it would sound so pitiless and so, so harsh if they did otherwise. Do we not do the same thing at times? Is it not our knee-jerk, almost unconscious reaction to see someone that we especially have had little regard for or someone that we've watched do things that we think are spiritually dangerous and just morally repugnant and if something serious happens to them, we think, but usually won't say it out loud, they had it coming. It was bound to happen. It was God giving them what they deserved for their sinning. See, humankind's attitude regarding physical disability and personal calamity hasn't changed all that much in several thousand years. Even if we act outwardly different towards it in Western society by providing wheelchair ramps, restrooms equipped for the disabled, signs in Braille, and so on, it's still pretty much the same. But let me also be clear that Messiah never said, nor did he imply, that no physical disability or calamity was God-caused. Certainly some was, some is. The issue is that it is rare that we have any actual insight into which is which.
and that it is just wrong of us to assume that all physical distress or calamity is a result of a person's sin. It's just as wrong also to assume that God would never intentionally pour out calamity or disability on people He loves as a punishment or as discipline. We do not know. And we probably ought to be considerably more humble in our personal personal estimations about it. Thus, back to our story. Mephibosheth is automatically seen as cursed by God. And thus, he's disqualified to be anything but a person to be ignored. Even though Mephibosheth had legal rights of inheritance as Jonathan's son, King Saul's grandson, here instead was a Gentile servant running Saul's estate due to no more than social customs, superstitions, and false religious doctrines that deemed that's the way it had to be. In verse 4, David asks Mephibosheth where Mephibosheth was residing. Interestingly, he is not dwelling on Saul's estate that Ziva is running. Rather, he's living in the house of Mahir in a place called Lodavar. Mahir is a standard family name in the portion of the tribe of Manasseh that chose to live up in the Transjordan. So Mephibosheth, who is a Benjamite, is being hidden from the Gibeonites by a member of the Makir clan up in the northern Transjordan. The Makir group was one of many who were fiercely loyal to King Saul. So it's no surprise that it would be them who would offer sanctuary to Saul's grandson. Now, Lodavar is either a translation error or it's a copyist error. For one thing, Lodavar, if you take it literally, it means no pasture or no word, depending on which vowel sounds you use to pronounce it. Either way, it's nonsensical. Rather, the place name is Libir, and we find it first mentioned in Joshua 13.26. It's located east of the Jordan River, which is called the Transjordan, near Jabesh Gilead. And the people of that area had very close ties with the tribe of Benjamin, and especially with Saul's family, even before Saul was king, because they were rescued from the brutal king Nahash of Ammon by a large contingent of men from the tribe of Benjamin, led by Saul. Later still, after Benjamin was decimated in a severe police action by the other 11 Israelite tribes, women from Jabesh Gilead were given to the few remaining Benjamite males to repopulate the Benjamite tribe. So the relationship between the people living in that area and Saul's family was far more than mere political loyalty. They were closely related by blood. So why would Jonathan's son be living in the Transjordan among another tribe 
and not in his own family's estate, being well cared for by the hired caretaker, Ziva. Because of what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Mephibosheth was essentially the sole survivor of a David-approved blood vengeance vendetta by some Gibeonites against Saul's family. These Gibeonites were duty-bound to finish the job despite David's instructions to leave Mephibosheth alive. And you know, I suspect that David somehow felt he was absolved from liability before God by ordering those men to spare Mephibosheth. But of all people, David fully understood the timeless nature of a Middle Eastern blood vengeance. And he well knew that the danger to Mephibosheth remained. In fact, I suspect that David never thought Mephibosheth would survive for very long and was probably a little surprised to hear that he was still alive and living across the Jordan River. So David sins for Mephibosheth. And when Mephibosheth is presented to the king, he falls on his face in submission, no doubt, figuring his life's over. In verse 7, when David says, Don't be afraid. It's not because Mephibosheth is intimidated by being in the presence of royalty. Rather, it's because he thinks David is going to execute him. Or he's going to turn him over to those Gibeonites for retribution. Mephibosheth is shocked to hear that not only is he going to live, but that Saul's considerable estate is going to be turned over to him. Even more, the lame Mephibosheth is going to eat at David's table from here forward. And this is framed as a kindness, chesed, to him for the sake of his father Jonathan, whom David loved. Now, Mephibosheth, a cripple, useless, who has earned nothing, looked down upon with disdain all of his life, perhaps only with pity, even among the clan he's been hiding, is dumbfounded. In typical Oriental fashion, he asks why he, a dead dog, should be accorded such unmerited privilege. Dead dog is just an an expression of great humility, of being the lowest of the low, the least worthy. So David now turns to Ziva, and he tells him of a new reality. That crippled and formerly useless Mephibosheth is now his master. And the estate is being given to Mephibosheth in the name of his former master, King Saul, giving it all to Mephibosheth rather than allowing Ziva, who had maintained it well for years, good servant. He couldn't, it wouldn't remain in his possession. And all this is seen as Mishpat Sedek, righteous judgment, righteous justice. How does David have the right to order such a thing? Because he's king. Especially since Saul's estate had no current legal owner, then it reverted to the monarchy. That was the law. It was David's to do with as he pleased. He could have kept it for himself. But he didn't. 
Seva had the benefit of running the place and reaping its rewards for some time. And now he would still do well for himself. But he would do so under the ownership and authority of Mephibosheth. I can't imagine that Ziva thought that this was very fair or right. I'm certain he had hoped for a better outcome. Open your Bibles again to Matthew 20. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. And we are going to read verses 1 through 16. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who went out at daybreak to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on a wage of one denarius, the standard daily wage, he sent them off to his vineyard. And then on going out about nine in the morning, he saw more men standing around in the market square doing nothing. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too and I'll pay you a fair wage. So they went. And at noon, and again around three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. About an hour before sundown, he went out, found still others standing around and asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said, you too, go to the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages starting with the last ones hired and ending with the first. The workers who came an hour before sunset each received a denarius, so the workers who came first expected they'd get more, but each of them also received just a denarius. And on receiving their wages, they began grumbling to the farmer. These latecomers have worked only one hour. We've borne the brunt of the day's work in the hot sun, yet you put them on equal footing with us. But he answered one of them, Look, friend, I'm not being unfair with you. Didn't I agree? Didn't you agree to work today for a denarius? Now take your pay and go. I chose to give the last worker as much as I'm giving you. Haven't I the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Thus, the last ones will be first, and the first will be last. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God's justice is quite different than man's justice. And the story of David and Mephibosheth highlights this principle. Mephibosheth wasn't merely the last. He was the last of the last. But now he stands before the king as his friend. Now the estate belongs to him. Ziva will remain in charge. But it's for the purpose of providing for Mephibosheth's family and probably whatever women and children remained of the house of Saul. Mephibosheth is being relocated not to the family estate but to Jerusalem and there he'll eat at David's table it is the usual take that the reason for this relocation to Jerusalem is because he's lame and thus he needs to be near to David to receive the food that David has promised however it's important to understand that eating at David's table is not always literal It doesn't necessarily mean that a person is going to dine with the king. Rather, it is that the king gets only the best food, any kind of food his heart desires, and any quantity he wants. 
So the idea is that Mephibosheth will receive food of a quality fit for a king. It will be provided as a free gift. No cost. Notice that Mephibosheth is not going to live in the city of David, but rather in Jerusalem. So it's not that Mephibosheth is going to become an honorary member of David's court and become a high official and then thus dine daily with the king. I think there's something else at play here as well. Whereas before now, Mephibosheth was in hiding and thus protected from the blood avengers of Gibeon. He's now out of hiding. And the word of what has proceeded here today is going to be known far and wide in but a few days. If Mephibosheth was to reside on Saul's estate that now belongs to him, virtually at the front door of those who wanted blood vengeance upon him, he probably wouldn't last very long. His only other option was to go to one of the Levitical sanctuary cities. But that was hardly something anybody welcomed. Living in a city of refuge was virtually as a self-exiled prisoner and you lived on a subsistence level. Thus David took on the responsibility to protect Mephibosheth. And the only way he could do that was to keep him nearby where David's private bodyguard could deter any murderous intentions against him. Well, in verse 11, Zavah really tries to deter David's decision. But in doing so, further exposes his own haughty attitude. He tells the king that he will certainly obey every aspect of David's decree. However, he had been doing a good job of taking care of Mephibosheth and that Mephibosheth had been eating at my table. First of all, notice again that eating at my table does not literally mean dining together. Rather, it means providing for. Most often it's not refer- it is referring to food, but depending on the talk context, it could indicate providing for all of a person's needs. But to hear Ziva say, it was my table, is rather arrogant. Ziva owned nothing. Ziva was a Gentile servant. Zevah sat at the table that had been owned by King Saul and now essentially by King David. Zevah sat at the table that had been owned by the king. Zevah, the Gentile outsider, was given the privilege of joining in the bounty of an Israelite harvest in Israelite land that was an Israelite inheritance from the God of Israel. That privilege was given to him by the king of God's kingdom. But it was only because of the king's kindness, his chesed, that the Gentile Ziva could partake of Israel's bounty. And such a privilege could be easily removed if Ziva thought too much of himself or he didn't want to obey the conditions 
for this beneficial relationship as given to him by the king. Now turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 where this same pattern is retold in another way. And Gentile believers, I want you to pay very close attention to this. We're going to read verses 13 through 22 of Romans 11. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting Him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you have become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified because if God didn't spare the natural branches, He won't spare you. Take a good look at God's kindness and severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off.